Let's go to Mark's Gospel this morning. We're in chapter 2. Uh, let me say uh, first, um, thank you so much to our band who is stepping in uh, to help lead during um, kind of an in-between season at City Church. Um, I've been uh, more and more impressed with the uh, people that God has given us to help lead our band each week. Um, the last two weeks, they've just been so faithful and consistent and what can we do and how can we step in. And so uh, we're just thankful that God has, has brought this group of people who many times are behind the scenes up here uh, playing and not having to lead singing and things like that. But uh, to watch them step into this space is encouraging to my heart. Um, we are looking for a new uh, worship leader. So um, if you um, know of anyone, you can send them our direction as we kind of begin that, that process. But we're thankful for the faithfulness of those who are here uh, during this season as well. So help me give it up for them. Um, and if, you're, if all that is like what is going on to you, then you can uh, talk to Asherai after the service and we'll kind of uh, fill you in um, what's been going on the last few weeks. So we are in Mark chapter 2, we're in the series through the Gospel of Mark, and we've made it to chapter 2, uh, which marks a new section. You like that? Marks a new section. Gospel of Mark. So Mark now turns our attention over the next few weeks to five specific stories of conflict, conflict between Jesus and the prominent religious leaders of his day. And this conflict is going to culminate in this very revealing verse. I'll read this, this verse to you. Um, we're not, it's not our text today, but in chapter 3, verse 6, here's the, how this conflict in, ends. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So these five stories of conflict, will that will be the climax of these stories. That they are looking to destroy, that's a pretty aggressive word, to destroy him. So this section that we're going to cover the next few weeks, these five conflict stories, that opens and closes with two healing stories. These two healing stories kind of bracket these three episodes in between the healings that are about eating. What to eat, how to eat, what you should eat, should not eat. Eating. I feel like uh, before my, my parents moved here, my, my brother and, and sister-in-law moved here, um, when we would have Hudson gatherings and we came from all over to um, the Hudson house, that a lot of our time together centered on the idea of eating. Are you with me? Um, so it's kind of like we would finish one meal and then like, start getting ready for the next one. Like, when are we having lunch? And like, these are the type of questions we ask at the end of breakfast. And then at lunch, it's like, well, when are we having dinner? And what are we having for dinner? Like, we're asking these questions before we even got up from lunch. It's like, those gatherings seem to center around eating a lot. Anybody's family like this? Okay, put your hand up. It's okay. So there's going to be three episodes about eating that we'll get to in the next few weeks. Who should you be eating with? What should you be eating? Why should you be eating? But what we find in this section is this emerging opposition against Jesus that grows and grows from what we'll see today is kind of this suspicion of heresy all the way to a plot to murder him. Now, as we know, in Mark's gospel, Mark moves quickly. He 
is captivated by urgency. His recollections, his stories are concise, he's brief, he's to the point. I've mentioned every week that the word immediately is kind of his trigger word. Um, He's captivated by fast-moving, concise accounts of Jesus. And so we'll jump in uh, to where we left off in this new section, beginning in chapter 2. The first two verses give us some context here. Um, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So Mark brings us back to the city of Capernaum, uh, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Capernaum was kind of what most New Testament scholars believe was the kind of post-Nazareth location of Jesus, his home. Um, And we spent 24 hours with him there a few weeks ago. If you missed that message, you can go back and listen to it. Is there music playing? There's music playing. Can someone shake Alan and wake him up and let him know there's music playing? Let Neil know there's music playing. This is not uh, intentional background music for the sermon. What was I talking about? Capernaum. 24 hours with Jesus. You can go back and listen to the 24 hours with Jesus message from a couple of weeks ago. Interesting phrase that Mark uses here. He says that Jesus was at home, that Jesus returns home. And where he is at home, this house that he's staying in, there, it is standing room only. Now, the reason it's standing room only is because when Jesus last left Capernaum, what was going on? Sundown, they brought all of their sick, all those who needed the demons removed, and they just crowd Jesus, right? Remember, he bells and he's in a solitary place the next morning, and then he launches this kind of preaching campaign throughout the entire region. Now he's back at Capernaum, and the crowd regathers because when he last left, healing, preaching, right? Casting out demons. And so they're back, and they've crowded this small house that Jesus is in to the point that you can't even get in the door. Now, I want to hit pause here for just a second because I think there's something important that we don't want to miss here. We live in a very um, pull into my garage, close the door, don't talk to me culture, right? We can live, Ash and I both lived in big cities where there's lots of houses just right on top of each other, and yet you don't know anybody around you, even though you're living literally sometimes feet away from people. Our tendency is to be people who are very, I get home, I open my garage, I pull in my garage, I close my garage, and I live very internal life. When Jesus here is described of being at home, there's something important about the idea that his home, this home that he is in, is flooded with people in need. Um, That Jesus did not live a close-the-garage mentality life. He lived among the people, and as a matter of fact, in this situation, his home doors are open to people coming in to be healed, to preach to them, and specifically what he's doing here. And it challenged me this week to think about what is my ministry through my home, at home, look like? Are my doors open to people who are broken, in need, right? People who have questions, friends, neighbors, are my doors open? 
There's a ministry happening here in a home, right? That Jesus did not have a close the garage, stay away mentality. He had the opposite of that. And he's doing ministry in the grind of everyday life with open doors to very broken people. So that's a challenge for each of us. Who am I having into my home to be able to minister to them? By the way, not just people that look like you, act like you, think like you, right? Who am I having in my home that's broken and in need, hurting, wounded? The model of Jesus here is very pointed to us, isn't it? And so here's Jesus at home preaching the word to them. He continues to proclaim this good news message of the inbreaking rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God, and this invitation to repent, to, to turn and live under the rule and reign of God, to believe. Now, it's easy to miss how outlandish the next part of the story is with Mark's kind of matter-of-fact style. Uh, look in verse 3. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So once again, like before in Capernaum, when we spent the 24 hours with Jesus, once again, Jesus is interrupted in the middle of a message. This time, it's not by a disruptive demoniac, right? This time, it's by falling debris, falling debris that is created by four desperate friends who, unable to get their disabled friend to Jesus because of the crowd size, decide to climb to the roof of the house, tear open the roof, and lower their friend to Jesus. Houses in this culture were typically single-story structures with flat roofs that were accessible by an outside staircase uh, most often there would be wood beams or branches or tiles that were kind of thatched together with some type of mud-covered rush that would cover the roof. Uh, the word that Mark uses here is literally they were digging it out. There is some real demolition going on here. And also in the story of Mark. See what I did there? There's real demolition going on here. Also in Mark, come on, you guys are off today, or I'm off. <laughs> Some real demolition here. They're digging out the roof. Now, here's how my mind works. So many missing details here. Here's the questions I want answered. What is the reaction of the homeowner? Um, if we go back to Capernaum, the previous visit, this is potentially Simon Peter's home. Also remember, Peter is the primary influence, most believe, behind the gospel of Mark. And so is this Peter's home? And from all indications, Peter's kind of a hothead, right? It's like, what is Peter's reaction to them digging a hole in his roof? Is this covered under some kind of homeowner's insurance policy? Like, who's paying for this mess? Like, is that you standing in the living room? You happen to get in and you're bundled up with a crowd and the debris starts falling and you own the house? Is your immediate response like, who's paying for this mess? So that's, that's what's going on. These are the questions that kind of surface in my mind. Um, and, and like, what about all this dirt and dust and chunks that are falling on everyone? Here's an interesting question. How did they lower this guy? 
It's like tie a rope around his, I mean, there's a mat involved somehow, but that seems like a very sketchy ride down, right? Maybe ropes tied to the four corners of a mat. I mean, this guy's got to be a little unstable coming down. And then what is Jesus doing while this is happening? It's like he paused the message, just keep right on going, like it's a distri- no distraction at all. Is he getting dust and chunks out of his hair? I don't know what's going on, but these are a lot of unanswered questions. Mark leaves a ton unsaid. He does not really reveal much about the paralytic. A matter of fact, the paralytic in the story is completely passive. Like his only active description is lying on his mat. That's the only activity we have from the paralytic in the whole story. Lying on his mat. Some of you ladies are like, that's the only active participation of my husband around the house. Lying on his mat. The friends are active, aren't they? The friends are carrying. They're trying to get through the crowd. They're going to the roof. They're digging out this opening. They're lowering this guy to Jesus. Like they are committed to this task, overcoming any obstacle necessary. And then what happens next is completely unexpected in light of What's been going on? Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, meaning primarily the friend's faith, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's be honest. We might be a little skeptical of a doctor who makes the same announcement when we show up for medical treatment. If I go see our dear beloved Dr. Beach, who is our family doctor of the Ten City Church here. And I go to see Dr. Beach for a particular reason, and I say to him, Dr. Beach, here's what's going on. Can you help me? And he looks at his pad and then says to me, Devin, your sins are forgiven. I might think, I need a new doctor. <laughs> Love Don and Susan, but maybe Don's time has expired. He's now forgiving my sins. I need to go back to last week when I've told this story about having um, eczema and going to it. My mom wasn't here, so I'm going to retell it for her sake. No, I'm just not. I'm not telling it. I'm not retelling it. Um, Go back and listen. But um, I'll have to say, if you remember in the story, I had this case of eczema, and we went to this local country little town doctor, and his solution was to cut the tongue out of my shoes, okay? So that that was his diagnosis. It was... Did nothing but humiliate a teenage boy, still living with those scars. But let me put it in perspective for you. Here's the amount of confidence you can have in this doctor. Before this situation with the eczema, the leprous feet, before that situation, my, da- my dad also went to this doctor uh, with what we believe was potentially a torn rotator cuff. Is this correct? And so I want to make sure I get my facts right. My parents attend church here now, so I have to make sure all these stories I tell are factually accurate. (laughs) I'm younger, though, so if there's a question, you probably need to go with me. Um, (laughs) So my dad went for a torn rotator cuff, and the prescription that this same doctor who had me cut the tongue out of my shoes, his dad left the doctor's appointment, and I believe it was my mom who said, what was the 
what was the, the resolution here? Like, what did he prescribe you? Have a, you have a prescription. What is this prescription for? Ready for the answer? The, the prescription that was made out was for Metamucil, okay? So, <laughs> torn rotator cuff, walked away with a prescription for Metamucil. So, that puts the whole doctor thing in perspective, right? Same guy that had me cut the tongue out of my shoes. So if you go to this doctor and he says, my, your sins are forgiven you, this is an answer that you're not expecting. We expect Jesus to heal the paralytic. Instead, he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. He forgives his sin, not based on the paralytic's faith, but on the tenacious faith of his friends who act on behalf of their disabled friends. Well, Jesus' announcement calls quite a rift among a group of scribes who are present. Look in verse 6. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, so internally, in their hearts and minds, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Scribes were experts. They were custodians of the law and of the oral, the sacred traditions of that day, we might expect or assume that the scribes were kind of be the best ones positioned to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Instead, they are offended by him. How dare he? Who does Jesus think he is? He is blaspheming. Only God can forgive sins. Bingo. They get it right. Only God can forgive sins. They are exactly right. Only God can forgive sins. Now, in Hebrew tradition, they didn't even necessarily believe that the Messiah would have the authority to forgive sins. That this was reserved exclusively for God. Throughout Scripture, forgiveness is a core characteristic of God. Listen to one of the most descriptive declarations in all of the Old Testament of who God is in Exodus chapter 34. And this is when Moses asked God, can I see you? And God's like, well, you can't see me and live, but I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll allow my glory to pass. And then God gives us a definition, a description of who he is, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. I actually want to do a short series just on these verses at some point. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, listen, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the description of God of himself declaring who he is, that he is a God who forgives sin. You see, if Jesus is not God, he is blaspheming. He has no authority to forgive sins. If he is God which is what his claim is here, he has the authority to forgive sins. 
Blasphemy, by the way, was a religious crime that was punishable by death in the Old Testament law, Leviticus 24, 16. Eventually, this is the charge that the religious leaders will bring against Jesus to condemn him. If you fast forward way to the end of the book in Mark's gospel and the other gospel writers, blasphemy is one of the primary charges they bring against Jesus to seek his death. Look how Jesus responds, verse 8. And immediately, there's our word again, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, it has to freak them out a little bit just because things they were thinking in their mind, Jesus suddenly says, why are you thinking these things? Like, Kind of glad Jesus is not sitting in the room with us on, regular, on the regular. Like, why are you thinking about that? Well, everybody knows I was thinking it now. That's what happens in this instance, right? Jesus knows what they're thinking. He's God. He understands even what's in their hearts and souls. By the way, this is a chaotic scene. Debris is following, falling. There's chaos, right? These guys lowering their friend. And amidst all this chaos, Jesus perceives what's going on in their hearts. And questions them, ask them. He really provides them an opportunity to kind of reconsider their position by asking this puzzling question that doesn't have a straightforward answer, typical Jesus. He says, which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk, which is easier? Mm, yes, I don't know the answer to this. One is visible, right? verifiable. If this guy can get up and walk, that's hard evidence. The other is not verifiable. Forgiving sins is an internal thing. It's a spiritual thing. One can be verified, one cannot. Here's what Jesus does. He proves his authority by doing both. Both. Verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So there's the authority to forgive. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, here's our word, immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God. And I love this last phrase in the section saying, we never saw anything like this. Somehow in this text, the authority to forgive sins and the authority to heal are brought together. The authority to heal and restore and the authority to forgive are the same divine, supernatural authority. Here's what that means. Jesus has authority over sickness. Jesus has authority over sin. He can do what only God can do. I would say to us in our modern context, do not forget that Jesus has authority over both. Do not forget that Jesus has authority over the sin in your life. To forgive it, to help you live in the victory of the cross. Do not forget that Jesus has divine supernatural authority over sickness. I should have mentioned earlier in the day that we prayed for our dear brother 
um, Jim many last week and that God brought him safely through a very risky surgery. And we prayed specifically for that prayer that God has the ability to forgive sin and to, uh, has authority over sickness even in our day and age. And we should pray accordingly. We should pray believing that God has authority over sickness, that God has authority over sin. We'll see later in Mark's gospel how as humans, there's kind of a broken connection that like I want to pray in absolute faith for God to heal and forgive, but I have doubts. I'm a human at times. So often when I pray these prayers, I pray saying, God, I know that I have doubts and insecurities, that my, my faith is weak at times. Would you bridge that gap? Help me in my unbelief. That we serve the God who has absolute authority over sin and over sickness, and we pray accordingly. Now, on a side note here, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is a title that has just deep Messiah overtones. It's used 14 times in Mark's gospel, and it only comes out of the mouth of Jesus. So we'll come back to that title later in our study and talk about its significance. But this is the first time that Jesus uses this title of himself, that he is the Son of Man. And then Mark brings us back to, again, the response of the crowd, as he's done in previous um, episodes, that they are amazed and they are glorified and they are saying, we never saw anything like this. And I love those words that they are awestruck by Jesus, that they are mesmerized by Jesus. Here was the question that I asked myself in preparing to teach you today. How often am I captivated by Jesus? How often am I awestruck by who he is? How often am I mesmerized by his forgiveness of my sin. That's the context here, isn't it? The healing, the forgiveness. How often am I mesmerized that he would forgive my sin? And I want you to hear me clearly today when I say this. Jesus forgives sin. He forgives. You need to hear that. You need to hear it over and over and over and over in your life that Jesus forgives sin, that his forgiveness is real, that his forgiveness is authentic. It's not just Christian cliche. It's not just words we throw around. It's not just Sunday school lessons that we teach and songs that we sing, that his forgiveness is real and it is authentic, that he heals our brokenness. And here's what that means for me. Guilt and shame have no place in the life of the forgiven. His forgiveness is real. It's authentic. Shame, guilt have no place in your life. You are a forgiven person. 
At times, I kind of have this dialogue in my mind over this issue as I wrestle with my own guilt and shame at times over previous sins or seasons of my life. And I, I have this dialogue in my mind of, Jesus, I feel so guilty and ashamed over my sin. And his response to me is, Devin, what sin? What sin? Your sin is forgiven. What sin? Jesus forgives and forgets. I don't know how it all happens. I don't know how literal we take all those scriptures, how an all-knowing, sovereign God, but the thing that scripture says is that he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. He buries it that is forgotten in his spiritual economy of being forgiven that my sins are forgotten. What sin? We drag it up. We bring it up. We live in it. What sin? As humans, we, we even use the language. I'll forgive, but I will not forget. That's our broken manifestation of forgiveness. And yet we serve a Savior who forgives and forgets. Here is what I know today. Some of us limped in here. Some of us limped in here, wounded and broken and ashamed and guilt-ridden and thinking if they only knew what was going on in my life, in my thoughts, in the dark, in the secret of my life. Some of you limped in here today, wounded and broken and hurting, ashamed and guilty. Hear me. Look at me. Look at me. You are forgiven. You are a forgiven person. Some of you are living in guilt and shame today because of things in your life. Look at me. Look at me. You are forgiven. Hear me. Hear me, in Christ, you are forgiven. If you have brought it to him, repented, confessed your sin to him, you are a forgiven person. You are forgiven in him. You are not guilty. You are not ashamed. You are forgiven in Christ. Some of you may have been dragged here by someone else. Some of you, you, you men are here today because your wife wants you to be here. And you don't want to be here. Some of you are here because it's ju you just feel like that's what you're supposed to do. But you don't want to be here because you're kind of broken inside. And you're wounded. Look at me. You are forgiven. You are forgiven in Christ. There are people here today who are spiritually disabled. You are wounded, you are hurt, you are broken, and your soul is overwhelmed by guilt and shame. Some of you are paralyzed in your spiritual life or your, your regular everyday life because of something that you have done or something that you are doing or something that has been done to you. And you're afraid. 
You're afraid of being exposed. You are afraid of the secret getting out. You are afraid of people really knowing what's going on in you. You are afraid of people knowing what's been done to you as an adult, as a child. And those wounds run deep and they will cripple you and paralyze your spiritual health and your mental health and your emotional health and even your physical health. Look at me. He forgives you. He forgives you. Come to him. He is slow to anger and compassionate and full of mercy. And I believe God has brought you here today to this moment because you need to hear what Jesus says to you. You need to hear Jesus wants to forgive you, that he delights in forgiving, that he cares, he heals, he restores, he sees you. He died for your sin. And he does not forgive begrudgingly and reluctantly or with some agenda. Forgiveness is his default setting. And again and again, when God has the opportunity to speak about himself, he speaks in terms of his forgiveness, that he is slow to anger, full of compassion, full of grace, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love, forgiving sin. I read for you the Isaiah the prophet Isaiah the prophet tells us that God, God's desire to forgive and restore is what sets him apart from anyone or everyone else. He forgives you. It's who he is. This is so important. There are no in-between there are no intermediate steps between our repentance and God's forgiveness. You hear me? There's no in-between. There's no do these things, figure these things out. When we turn to him, he forgives. He is ready to forgive. He is eager to forgive. He's not like us. We're slow to forgive. He does not chide us. He does not scold. He does not roll his eyes because here we are again. He does not require us to prove ourselves. He delights in us. He delights in forgiving. Forgiving is what he does. Here's what that means for us. When we sin, we can be quick to confess our sins to God. We do not have to be ashamed or afraid or nervous or hesitant. We can come to him again and again and again, and we can come boldly to the throne of grace again and again and again and find mercy to help in our time of need. He is eager to forgive. He's not like us. He's not. Well, here we go again. 
How are you going to prove yourself? Heard this last week. That's not the God we serve. He is eager and anxious to forgive us as we come to him to find mercy. Here's what else that means. We are forgiven. We are a forgiven people. God is for us. We can live life assured of his delight in us. We do not have to keep God at a distance. We can live with boldness and confidence and joy. My sins are forgiven. We are citizens of a kingdom that is defined and saturated by forgiveness. We are a forgiven people. By the way, to quote Paul, to take it back to Jesus, forgiven people forgive people. Paul said it, right? You forgive as Christ has forgiven you. The disciples, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Like, you're forgiven. You forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you don't stop forgiving. Now, listen closely. I know as broken humans, forgiveness can be complicated. I get it. I'm not trying to trivialize. I know it requires a supernatural act of grace in our hearts and our lives at times. I know, I know it makes you vulnerable, exposed, susceptible to hurt and betrayal again. I know some of you have been wounded and hurt and betrayed at a deep level. And I know forgiveness is messy in those situations. I know it's complicated, especially when the person who hurts you is unrepentant or you are unsure of their sincerity or they've done it again and again and they've continued to hurt you when you have forgiven again and again. I'm not pretending that forgiveness is easy or simple. Here's what I'm suggesting. Bring it to Jesus. Bring it to him. He is more compassionate than you know. He is more compassionate than you realize. He is more approachable than you believe. Bring it to him. He understands your hurt and he cares. Come to him and find rest. And here, here's what I believe I need to tell some of you that are struggling with this issue. Fixate your eyes on Jesus. Bring it to him and focus on him. Here's what we tend to do. We want to bring it to him, but our eyes are focused on the person who's hurt us or wounded us or betrayed us. We allow our minds to be fixated by them. Jesus says, come to me, you're heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look, this is complicated, right? It's messy. How do I forgive a person who hasn't done this or has done this or what does that look like? I don't have all those answers. There's lots of resources to figure that out and what steps to take and how to keep yourself from being abused again and again. And that's the way we counsel. That's the way we preach the gospel. That's the way we do things around here at City Church. But I am telling you at a fundamental base level, step one is I will bring it to Jesus. I will bring it to Jesus and I will fixate my eyes on him. Forgiven people forgive 
people. This is the heart of the gospel. He forgives. He knows. He cares. He hears. He sympathizes. Come to him. Let me bring this full circle and we're done. This gospel message that I'm talking about right now, this is the message that we take to the wounded and to the broken. Like we don't need to miss the urgency of these friends in this text to get their broken friend to Jesus. I don't think it's the primary point of this text, but we don't need to miss that their tenacious faith and their just undaunted effort to overcome obstacles to get their friend to Jesus challenges me, speaks to me. And here's how it speaks to me. Who in my life needs Jesus? What friend? What family member? What neighbor? What coworker? What am I doing to love that person to Jesus, to get that person to Jesus. We don't know the name of these four friends. We don't even know how they heard about Jesus outside of just everybody knows what Jesus is doing. We don't know their relationship to the dude on the mat. We don't know if any of them have been healed and that's why they're bringing him to Jesus. We don't know any of that information. But what we do know is that their act of kindness and compassion and faith changed the life of their paralytic friend forever. Who's your friend? Who is your friend that needs Jesus? And by the way, relationships are always the best starting point. So maybe... The first question in my life is, do I have friends in my life that do not know Jesus? And if the answer is that I don't know or no, then make some more friends. Who is the person in your life broken and wounded and in need of Jesus? And will we do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus, to love them? to Jesus. Here in my heart, City Church, we're in a this kind of transition season of City Church as we, I mean, God has done so much in two years' time, and here we are moving into a new space and fresh season, fresh opportunity, and all those things. But hear my heart. Oh, how I long to be part of a group of Jesus followers. who experience the forgiveness and the healing of Jesus in such a way that we can only stand awestruck, amazed, and glorify God and proclaim. We've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. I've never seen how God restored a marriage like that. I've never seen how God healed a heart 
like that. I've never seen how God enabled forgiveness. Like, don't you want to be a part of this type of group of Jesus followers that are constantly standing in awe of who he is and what he's doing? Constantly awestruck by his work in the lives of the people at City Church, by his work in my life, by his work in your life, by his work in the lives of our community through bringing people to Jesus, broken, wounded people to Jesus, that we stand back and scratch our heads, mesmerized by him. I'm in awe of how Jesus took that bitterness of my heart and redeemed it for his glory. I am mesmerized by a Jesus that could remove the anger in my heart and soul and that can live a life of forgiveness toward that person. I am mesmerized that Jesus could take and heal this addict who continues to struggle and we have to pick him up again and restore him again and walk beside him. But I'm amazed at what Jesus is doing in his life. I'm amazed of this couple that looked like they had no hope. And Jesus stepped in. Here's what it really comes down to. Awestruck by his forgiveness. How could he forgive someone like me? Maybe we're not awestruck by his forgiveness because we fail to see the depth of our own depravity, brokenness, and need for him. And when we begin to wrap our minds around how lost we are without him, then we begin to stand amazed by his grace and forgiveness in our lives. Oh, what a Savior he is. Let's bow our heads for prayer.